It is a, <clears throat> it's a difficult time, I know, for Eileen and her family, and uh, also for us. We continue to pray for you, Eileen, and your family. And we, we praise God that, um, that you were able to make it here this morning. You know, and, and I, I don't know, this is, the, <laughs> this is where I'd want to be, and I'm glad that you guys have found the same thing and the same comfort in the showing up and being here with us today. We'll pray for your... Do you, do you still have your mom? No? Okay. So they're not together. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and again, we, uh, we, we continue to pray for you. Are there any other prayer requests that we can go ahead and bring to the Lord? Yes, Jen. Teresa? Yeah, that's right. How's she doing, by the way? Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yes, Richard. Okay. Martha, right? Okay. We'll keep praying for Martha. And Alexis. All right. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, yes, sure. In Poland. Okay, Tommy. All right, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you this morning with heavy hearts, but with hearts that we know that you can fill with joy in spite of all the turmoil that goes on around us. And in this letter that uh, is given to us by Paul, written by your Holy Spirit, it shows us to have this joy, teaches us to have this joy in the darkness. In this dark world, Lord, there are so many pains and aches and so many things that just seem to wear us down. But Lord, when we focus on you, as we will find out today, when we focus on your excellence and your integrity and the love that abounds and, and all that you give us and, and the, your, the good works that, that come out through all of that and that just praise you, Lord, we know that you will continue to do your work and you will see it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I do lift up to you right now, uh, Teresa, and, and Father, we just pray and thank you for the recovery that she's going through even now. We lift up to you, Alexis, as well, and the struggles that she goes through in life with her children and just her own personal issues that go on. For Tommy, Lord, that is, um, is always in harm's way. And, and I know that our grandmother is, is the first to lift up prayers to her grandson. And I just pray and I thank you, God, that you just are, are there and answering it. For, for Martha as well, as she struggles through life, trying to get a grasp on what happened and what took place. And all of this, Lord, just, just happening now within, within weeks, uh, week, weeks of this just taking place, Lord. We, we go through this one more time. And, and Lord, help us to minister to, to Eileen and her family and uh, help us to be there in the time of need. And whatever we can do, Lord, I just, I just know that you're going to come through. Each one of us have personal struggles and personal ambitions and things that seem to, to grow in our life. And, and right now, Paul is praying to you. And, and right now, Paul is showing us by example how a pastor ought to pray for his congregation and the children that are of God. And, and, and the prayer that he lifts up, Lord, is one of excellence, one of abounding love, one of integrity, one of good works, one of glory to you. And the, the prayer that he prays for is, is, is deeper than anything that we can ever think of. He desires for his congregation, his church, his, your people to grow and to be able to develop and to weather these storms in order to be able to weather these storms. Because, Father, apart from your word, there is nothing else that is going to ground us and hold us to you. So, Lord, help us to learn from this blessed apostle, this man that was your enemy at one time, just like all of us were. We were up against, kicking against the goad until you knocked us down on the ground, until you blinded us from this world and showed us who you are, until you redeemed us and brought us to this point to recognize your presence. So, Father, thank you once again on how you work things through in our life for your good, for what you're going to do. 
because we love you. And we have been called according to your purpose. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone says amen and amen. Okay, we'll open up to Philippians chapter 1. As I mentioned last week, we're going to finish up the, the, the chapter that we, the part of the section that we started on last week. And, it, and it's, an, it's a very, it's a section that is packed full of a lot of information and we just had to get through most of it last week. And I'm just going to go over it very quickly just to, uh, just a review of what we talked about. And in, in Paul's prayer, Philippians chapter 1 verses 7 uh, through 8, first of all, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul has this love, this, this passion for the church. And, and though he's not there, he's in prison, he's remembering the salvation of, of everyone that has come to Christ at that point. We remember we talked about Lydia. We talked about the young lady that was possessed by a demon and he healed her. And we talked about the jailer and his household that was saved. And those three people were the catalyst of the church that exploded in Philippi. And people came to know Christ because of the ministry that Paul did in their life. And Paul doesn't just leave them there. He he writes them a letter and he encourages them. And he says, you know, this is my prayer. I want to continue praying and continue moving forward. And he says in verse Verses 9 and 10 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. This is what Paul is praying for. He knows that there's needs in the church. He knows that they're being persecuted. He knows that there are just things that are happening that are beyond our control. But, and his prayer is not only that, and I'm sure he prayed for their well-being, for their, for their subsistence in life, and he prayed that, God, you take care of them. But Paul was more concerned not of their happiness, but of their holiness. See, a lot of Christians, a lot of people proclaim and, and reach out and say, well, God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to pray for happiness. And, and we get that wrong because what God desires is our holiness. God desires for us to be holy. That's what He wants. That's what He desires. He desires for you to be holy. And, and as you know, holy doesn't mean pure, but it has the aspect of being pure. God says, I want you to be holy as I am holy. So we know we can't be pure like God is pure. So we have to wonder, okay, so what does that mean, holy? And holy means to be separated, to be uncommon, to be not common like the rest of the world. And in, in the, to the Levitical priests, God had mentioned to them, He said to them, I want you to teach my people how to be holy, not common like the rest of the world. And there's the opposite of holy. The opposite of holy is common. God desires for you to be uncommon different in every aspect of your life, in the way that you present yourself, in the way that you carry yourself, in the things that you think, in the things that you do. You need to be separate from the world. And we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. And God's desire is not for you to be happy. And and Christian, I, I, I want to ask you, and I want to just share with you right now and just warn you, that is not your goal in life. And yet people are claiming that God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be. And so they go from relationship to relationship looking for happiness when God says he wants you to be holy. Now, let me give you something that is really, uh, it's kind of a, one of those, it's, it's a dichotomy, you know, because you, you want to be happy, but God says you ought to be holy. You know, if you were to pursue holiness, being separate, guess what? God is going to add happiness into your life. It's just, and it works that way. But if you pursue happiness, you're not going to get holiness. You're going to get what the world gives you. 
And so Paul says, I want you to be strong. I want you, and this is my prayer for you, abound in that love. And we talked about this love last week. It's this agape love. It's this, this love that is unconditional. It's not this familial love. It's not this erotic love. It's not this uh, friendship love. It's not this you know, type of, you know, I, I like you type of love. It's, it's an it's a agape love. And the, and the Greeks had six or seven different words for love. Us, we have one word. I love pizza. I love my Harley. I love my dog. I love my wife. And we use the same word. But for the Greek, they use different words. And we have three of them in the New Testament, which is eros, which is passionate love, or where we get our word erotic. Uh, also, phileo is uh, the, 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 like Philadelphia, the brotherly love. And, and, and then there's agape, unconditional love. We, t- we went through, through a whole lot of ex- explanation on that because God says, and Paul says, my prayer for you is that you abound in this love, that you grow and you just exponentially just let it grow in your love. The problem for us is that we, we don't have agape love. We don't. We have this conditional love. I love you if, or I love you when, or I love, you know, if things are in, in right order for me. And you see, when you have this agape love, it, that grows and it grows and it continues to grow up. And the exciting thing about this agape love is that, that it, it, it blesses you more than it blesses the other person. You, you become the giver of this agape love. Our problem is that we're afraid that people are going to take advantage of it. People are going to take us, take us for granted when we love people unconditionally. But that's the kind of love that we are supposed to give. You see, you know, what if, what if I love people unconditionally? What if they start, you know, talking bad about me? Well, did they talk bad about Jesus? Yeah. And he had a God below. What if they start to persecute me? Did they persecute Jesus? Yes, they did. What if they start misunderstanding me and taking advantage of me? Did they take advantage of Jesus? Did they misunderstand him as well? You see, when you say that you want to be a Christian and you cross the line and you become a Christian, you are like Christ. And when you say you want to be like Christ, guess what? God is going to take you through the same steps he took Jesus Christ through. You will be misunderstood. You will be. You will be maligned. You will be talked about. You will be ousted. You will be different. You will be holy, separated. And this is why Paul says, I want you to abound in this love. I want you to grow in this love, in the knowledge and in, and, and in the, uh, not the knowledge of this love, this perfect knowledge that he says, with all knowledge and with all discernment, to be able to tell the difference between what's right and wrong. You know, you, you, you have to be, you can be just a, a regular Christian to know a little bit about the word of God, to know what's right and what's wrong. And many people walk this, walk this world and walk this earth and they go to church day in and day out, weekend after weekend. And a lot of them say, well, I love God. I believe in God. I know God. And we talked about the belief in God. You know, even the demons believe. And I shared with you many verses last week on how every one of these demons, they had this understanding of who Jesus Christ was. They knew who he was. They knew he was the son of God. They knew that, that these demons could be tormented by Jesus Christ before the appointed time. They knew about the appointed time. They knew about the end times. They knew that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They knew that he had power to torment them at this time. And every one of these instances where the demons come up to Jesus or Jesus confronts them, they know who he is. And James says, you believe that there's a God? Well, good, because even the devil believes, and he trembles. A lot of, a lot of people that I see and hear that they're Christians, oh, yeah, I believe in God. They don't even shudder. They don't even tremble. They can, you know, it's no big deal. You know, God loves me. He died on the cross for me, so I'm good. I'm all right. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, he understands my dilemma. I'm not a perfect person. And so therefore, they continue on in their life. You know, that's not salvation. Regeneration means to be regenerated, made brand new. 
not to continue on in the things that you're doing. Next week, when we come back, just want to give you a little fair, fair warning. Uh, you may want to bring somebody or maybe not. But in verse 12 of uh, Philippians chapter 1, it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And next week, I'm going to focus on the gospel message. I'm going to share with you what gospel means, good news. I'll share with you where it came from in the Old Testament. I'm going to share with you what the the apostles and Jesus Christ themselves had in their hands, what they used. They didn't have the Romans road because there was no Romans that written yet. They didn't have the the, the five spiritual laws or the four spiritual laws. They didn't have evangelism explosion. They didn't have any other tool but the Old Testament. And so what gospel message that these apostles use, I want to share that with you, because it's the same gospel back then of faith as the gospel it is of today. Abraham was justified by faith. We are justified by faith, and we all meet at the cross. And the good news, first and foremost, has to be understood in light of the bad news And that's the part that a lot of people get kind of, you know, you see, beloved, the gospel message wasn't one to be, you know, to to be accepted or is not one to be, you know, you know, understood. The gospel message is meant to cause this cutting of your heart. One of two things happens. Either you'll flee from the gospel message or you'll fall down on your face because of the gospel message. There's no other way about that. And it is offensive. It has to be offensive in order for you to understand, for me to understand that we are sinners and we need salvation. Salvation from what? From what am I going to be saved? You will be saved from God himself. The song that we just sang, the last one, the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus Christ. We need to know that that wrath that was due to me was satisfied on Jesus Christ. And that is the good news. I don't have to experience the wrath that God has coming to us. That's the good news. Beloved, if you know anybody that needs to hear the gospel message, I'm just warning you right now, bring them or don't. But, you know, the gospel message will be preached next Sunday, and uh, as, as we do every Sunday. But I'm going to focus on that a little bit more, showing you that the gospel message is more than just feeding the hungry. See, people think, well, we're sharing the gospel by feeding the hungry. That's good. I mean, we should feed the hungry, you know, but that's not the gospel. You know, feeding the hungry or, or maybe clothing the hungry or having outreaches of some sort, which, which are good. These outreaches are great, but that's not the gospel message. See, even my testimony, even my testimony is not the gospel message. The gospel message is Jesus Christ died, buried, crucified, buried, and resurrected. That's the gospel message. But why? Why did he do that? Well, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, according to Scripture. And the only Scripture they had back then was the Old Testament. And see, we can have this understanding. We can have this knowledge. And anybody with just the basic knowledge knows what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. But it's this intimate knowledge, this approving knowledge, this pure and blameless knowledge that Paul had, uh, had talked about. We talked about the abounding love. We talked about growing in spiritual excellence. And Paul says, I want you to grow in spiritual excellence. I want you to strive for this spiritual excellence. I want you to be well-rounded in your scripture so that when somebody comes and gives you a verse or gives you this idea, there, there are two ways of doing Bible interpretation. And I'm going to give you some big words, and I'm just, then I'm going to try to bring them down to you. But they're, they're called exegesis and eisegesis. Now, remember, this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Jesus themselves. But exegesis is exegeting or taking out 
of what you find in the scripture. You read the passage, you read the background, you read the apostle or the writer or the prophet, you read what he's saying and you're trying to understand what was the original intent. And then you read the verse that you're trying to read and then you say, well, this is what the verse says according to what I just read. See, eisegesis is you're putting something into the content of the Bible. You come at it with, okay, I want to find a verse about how not to be mad. Okay, so I, you know, I'm finding verses on how not to be upset and how to be angry, and you'll find a lot of verses. Well, I think this is what it means to me. And you come out with this one idea of what you have put into Scripture. Beloved, one of my, one of my practices, it's trying to be, and I, and I try to be as, as, uh, as best as I can, as honest as I can, is trying to do the exegesis. I, I, I do research. I go back. I go look. And I look at the original words. And I, and I read it. And I, I, you know, sometimes I fall asleep just reading it. It's kind of like, <laughs> but I, I need to know what it says. And, and so when I show up here on Sunday, I can tell you that, you know what? This, is what, this is what Paul is doing. This is why I know that he was in prison. This is why I know who he's talking to. This is why I know what the church consisted of. Because that, those are the things that are there. It's not difficult to do, to be honest with you. It's very simple to say, this is what I think. This is what I believe. So you have to have this knowledge. And it's not an academic knowledge. You don't have to be a scholar for that. just have to realize. One of the verses I used last week, and just to show what I'm trying to say, is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Revelation 3, if we go there, if you want to see it. Many of you have read this before. At least you've heard it. Um, and I'm sure you've heard it many times before. And it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You see, Jesus is knocking at your door. As a matter of fact, there's a beautiful picture of Jesus with a lantern at the door. And he's sitting there knocking at the door. He's standing there knocking. And if you look at the picture very clearly, you'll see that there is no handle on the outside. And Jesus is knocking at your door and he wants to come in, but you will not let him in. What kind of wimpy Jesus is that? The, the Jesus that toppled the towers, or the tables at the temple, the Jesus that, that resurrected from the the Jesus that calmed the storms, the Jesus that silenced the mouths of the demon-possessed men. What kind of a Jesus is waiting for permission? That's not my God. You see, if you read this verse in its context, this context is to a church in Laodicea. And that what happened to these people, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you, you were either cold or hot. So, that, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And he's talking to a church. You guys aren't hot. You guys aren't cold. You guys aren't, eh, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. Maybe I'll, I won't. You know, okay, so that's his sin. You know, I don't mind it. And he says, for you say, I am rich. I have, pro I have prospered. I need nothing. I realize, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be, be clothed and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your, uh, anoint your eyes. So that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus says, I'm disciplining you. I want you to change. I repel. I, I ask you to repent. Repent because you are the bride of Christ. And then he says, you know what? I want to have fellowship with you. I want to. So I, I want you to. You're already in. You're already in the gospel salvation. You're already the part of the bride. But this message has nothing to do with evangelism. It is used, and it is used you know, in that sense, but it's taken out of context. 
Now, do people get saved because of that? I'm sure people have. But as I said before, you don't get saved out of saying a sinner's prayer. That sinner's prayer does not save you. It is God himself who saves you. And we went through a whole lot of verses last week to kind of describe that and share that with you on how that salvation, how rebirth takes place. You must be born again. And just like you weren't had anything to do with your natural birth, it is God who gave you life, and it is God who gives you spiritual life. And we take these verses out of context without even realizing it sometimes, and that God loves those who help themselves. That's in the Bible, isn't it? No, it's not. And so we come out with verses like that. And, and we say that, you know, that God is going to help you, but you got to help yourself. God never said that. As a matter of fact, what God said, he said, God helps those who ask. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and, it will, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. All you have to do is ask. And God says, I'll help you. And he'll help you sometimes by not allowing you to get what it is that you're asking for. <laughs> you know, and, and many of us don't want that answer, but, but I want that answer. I'm going to help you by saying no. <laughs> like my grandson, I'm going to help you by saying no. You know, this, this is not a good idea, but I want it. I don't care. Right? It's not what, you, it's what you've said to your kids. Amen. Right. Many times you said no, because you knew it was wrong. It was wrong. God wants, Paul says, I want you to grow in spiritual excellence. And then, and then back to Philippians chapter 1. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. So that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. We talked a little bit about that. We went into it. Let me just go from there. Chapter, uh, point number three. Because this, this, this whole passage, Paul is saying, this is how I want you to grow. This is how I want you to develop. This is how I want you to, to see not only yourselves, but others. I want you to grow in abounding love. I want you to grow in spiritual excellence. And number three, I want you to grow in spiritual integrity. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. And in verse 10, some of your translations might say, and so be pure and blameless. And others might say to be sincere and blameless. And I like the word sincere more than pure. But just, just to give you an idea, to have that integrity is to be pure and blameless before the day of Christ Jesus. The meaning of pure, it comes from the, uh, the Latins, when they translated that word uh, from Greek to Latin, they took that word and they called it uh, sincere or sincera. Sincera means without wax. Sincera means that, that this this artifact, this jar, this vessel that we have created, it has no wax. Let's see what unscrupulous uh, potters would do back in the day is as they were refining the pottery and they were building it and putting it together, oftentimes it would crack. And, and if it would crack, instead of throwing it away and making a whole new other ones, what they would do is they would melt some wax on it and put it along the crack and it will hold the water. And then they would paint it and, and sell it as a pure vessel. Problem is, if you put anything hot in there, you put it on the flames, the wax would melt and the pottery would be, and everything inside of it would be ruined. And so people, would, they, they started doing they started saying, you, you got to prove to me that this is sincera, sin wax. And the way they would do that is they would take this vessel and they would hold it up to the light and they would turn it around and you can see the crack and you can see the filling because it was darker than the rest of the material. And so that's how it was inspected. And this is the word that I believe Paul is using, sincera, sincere, your love, your 
your attention, your desire for God needs to be sincere and has to be pure. Sincere meaning that it, you've got to test it. You've got to test this love. You've got to test this knowledge. You've got to test all that you have that you may approve what is excellent. Approve doesn't mean, again, in the Greek word, it doesn't mean that you say, yeah, it's okay. Approve means that you've already tested it, that you've already checked it out, and you've already seen that there is no wax in your life. You are made by the potter, and the potter has created you to his fine pottery for noble purposes. And any crack, anything that's inside that there needs to be dealt with, needs to be taken care of. Every day we have to hold up our life and put it up to the Son of God. And look at the word and say, sincera, this is sincere, Lord. I am giving you my love because it's sincere. It's pure. I want this to be real in your life. Somebody told me this last week, you know, Pastor, thank God that I'm here because I don't want to, I want to stop messing around. I says, I want to stop messing around too. You know that? I'm too old to be messing around now. You know, I'm too old to be thinking, okay, well, maybe I can get away with it this time. No, we need to stop messing around. We need to be pure and, and sincere with what God is doing in our life. You see it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, one of the verses we used last week. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. And this is the word of God. And it's discerning the thoughts and intentions. The word of God is a sword. And what it does, it divides, it cuts, it pierces. It, you know, if, if you knew, you know, I wish I had a sword with me. Oh, there's one. Yeah, there's one there. Somebody already spotted it. You see, a sword basically has two parts. It's got the hilt, and then it's got the blade. And the hilt is designed in, cert- in a certain way for, first of all, that when you, the enemy comes at you, it, it hits the blade first and foremost. And, and the bottom part here is a lot thicker than the rest of it. And this part here is designed so you don't have to sharpen it. You can actually hold it with two hands if you needed to. Or you can actually use it as a, as a guard so it can keep the blade from coming down and, and, breaking, and breaking the rest of the blade. But this hilt has this, this cross member, this bar, and it has this, this, this big round piece here. It's, this pommel is, is more, it's used for a counterbalance so that you can have you know, the ability to do something like this, throw it around, you know, whatever you have to do. I've been practicing, so come here, James. No, <laughs> and, and, no not James. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so, like I said, it's, it's two pieces, the hilt and the blade. And the blade has a bunch of other pieces, too. It's got this ricasso part right here, which is thicker, like I mentioned. And then it's got the edge. The edge is really uh, it's designed to be sharp, and then it has the point. A double-edged sword is exactly what Paul is looking at. He's looking at a double-edged sword, and he says, you know what? This is the word of God. You know, when you handle it, it is, you're able to handle it in such a way that it will not cut you if you're careful with it. But it's, it's double-edged because it divides and it goes deep into the bone, into the marrow of the person. But when you put it in the spiritual factor, the way Paul is trying to put it down, he's saying this. He's saying, you know, God's word will cut you. And it will cut you deep. And it knows the intent of the heart. God knows the word of God, when you put it up to your face, it's, it's like what James says, nobody who looks at a mirror runs away from it. Nobody that looks in the mirror, they, they see the imperfections. And if you're a believer, you'll see the imperfections. You'll want to just hide your face because you know that you cannot stand before the presence of God. You see all the imperfections and you make changes. And James says, nobody who looks at his face in the morning, he doesn't go out that way. He makes the changes he needs to make. Don't walk out there with lagañas in your eyes. 
with nappy head, you know, baba's hanging down, all dried up, you know, from all, you know, clean your face, wash your nose, comb your hair, look presentable. Bañate, thank you. Bañate, por favor, you know. And, and what, what Paul is saying, and the writer to the Hebrews here is saying, is that this sword, it's piercing to the division of the soul. It will show you what is right. And here's one of our biggest problems, beloved. Once we know what is right, you're accountable for it. You're accountable for it. And when you start making the changes, yes, it's going to start dividing not only your life, but the life of other people. It's going to divide the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It's going to cut you in every way possible. That's the word of God. And the word of God is so important because we hold a, a, a high value of God's word. We want to go through God's word. We want to see what it says and how to apply it to our life and what, make the changes. This is Paul's prayer for his church. This is my prayer for you. To know this, God, this word of God. James says in, in 1 uh, verses 22 and 23, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You know, a lot of people... They hear the word, they see the word, they think, okay, well, yeah, God understands. Well, not anymore. Once you understand it, once you've read it, okay, now he holds you accountable. You are accountable to that which you have learned. You're accountable to that which you have discovered. You are now accountable for that word. This is why James says, be doers. You know, you got to put it into practice. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror and makes no changes. You see, when Paul is talking to us about the uh, ability to, to grow and to develop and to, to, in our love and in our knowledge and discernment so that we can approve what is excellent to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, what Paul is saying is that, you know, there's going to come a time when we're going to be held accountable. We're being held accountable every day. Some of the things that we go through in life as part of the discipline that God gives us. Part of it, part of the things, because of the things that we do on ourselves, and then everything falls apart, and we pray to God, God, you know, please help me. And God says, well, I told you. You know, you already knew this. You already knew that these, these were the consequences. See, you can choose what you want to do, but you cannot choose the consequences. The consequences are part of the package. And, and I'm praying that you're making good choices so that your consequences are good. You get good consequences for the the work that you're doing, the life that you're living, the people that you hang out with, and, and that your consequences are good. Many of you probably already heard about the shooting that was over in Highland just this, yesterday in, in the morning. And, uh, you know, the person that lost his life, I, I don't know anything about them. I don't know, anything, but, you know, according to the witnesses, they're saying that he was, he was a good person. He was. Well, you know, maybe so. And he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe so. But you see, the consequences of what we do always end up according to God's standard. I can't make them. I can't change them. That's God's law. And we, we need to be careful. If we hear what God says, then what we need to do is just do what he says. That's why we, Paul is saying, let it be a pure, a sincere life of integrity. And, and, and take that information that you've learned and put it up against the word of God and check yourself. Peter says we ought to check ourselves. The mature Christian determines not only to avoid sin in one's own life, but also make sure that he doesn't cause anybody else to sin. And, and sometimes, well, as a matter of fact, Matthew said in Matthew 18, 6, he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned 
in the depths of the sea. As a believer, and as a person that knows the word of God, and as if you put it into practice, and you're causing, and yet you're causing somebody else to sin, you know, because, well, at least I'm not sinning. You know, I'll hang out with them, and hey, I'll get a feel for it, at least, you know, and, oh, you know, it kind of gives me the goosebumps, and I get a little excited, but I'm not the one doing it. But I'm not the one stopping it either. I'm not the one saying, you know what, no more. Jesus says, you know, it's better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the farthest part of the ocean. To have integrity is also to stand against the world. And when James says in chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You've heard it said before, right, that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And so we have this beautiful relationship with Jesus, and he loves me, I love him, let's all get together and, you know, be with Barney, I don't know. I love you, you love me, and, and here we are, we got this Barney kind of love. <laughs> got this, what? I know, I, I, I raised grandchildren, what can I say? You know, and, and it's, it's, it is a religion. Religious is the practice that we make. Now, some people make Christianity into a religion where it's a practice that you try to get to God. To get saved. But that process, if you're regenerated, has already been done. Okay? The religion that you have now, the practice that you have now is to, are these things. You know, care for the widows and the orphans. But, you know, and most importantly, to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, it's very difficult sometimes to tell the Christian from the world apart now. Even in the music that we listen to. Even in some of the movies that we see, even in some of the places that we go, some of the churches that we attend, it's difficult to tell the Christian from the world. I would say that the world has stained the church. It does each one of us. And James is saying, don't let the world stain you. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> John says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the world, if you really just are so attracted to it, so want to be a part of it, and want to be just drawn to it, and, and, and that's, you know, you can't have two loves. It's either one or the other. You can't, you can't love one and love another, and many people have tried, and you've gotten yourself in trouble. You cannot do it. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, sincere, sincera. What is pure? What is sincera? What, what, is, what is it that, that you can put up in the light of Jesus Christ and you can see the defects and the deformities and, and you can ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to cleanse that with His Word. It is His Word that cleanses us. It is His Word that makes us blameless. Blameless is another word. Aprokospokos uh, expresses the extent of the goal of integrity. In other words, what you want to do, what you want to continue on doing, blameless, is to move forward in one's life without the moral failures. Blameless. This is not a call to perfection and holiness that is true of God and the saints. But since Paul is telling the Corinthians that you should give no offense to Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, do not let the, do not let the world see these things that you do in, in the world. And they look at you and they say, you're a Christian? I don't know if you've ever heard that one before. But I remember the first time I was called that. Are you, and you say you're a Christian? Or like my mama used to say, ¿Con esa boca comes? <laughs> With that mouth you eat? <laughs> really? Yeah, it's kind of a, okay, mama, I'm sorry. 
But this word, this, this, is, this is falling into sin, and it happens. It happens to people because they fall into the stages. You know, and people say, well, I just fell. I fell into temptation. I fell. No, no, we didn't fall. Most people run into it, to be honest with you. Most people try to figure out how to get around it so that you can, you know, nobody can see you. Because the first thing that happens to a believer is they merely, they're merely tolerated. They say, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's all right. As long as you do it, it's okay. And don't worry about anything else. As long as it's something that is sinful and we know it's okay, I'm not going to criticize you because that's who you are. This is who I am. And I'm not taking any sides against it. I'm not going to be too strong against that. But then what starts to happen is you start to accommodate it. Okay, well, so that's your lifestyle. You know, I'll, I'll, you can hang out with me if you want. And, but, but, you know, it's, it's still, I don't think it's agreeable. The next thing we do is we try to legitimize it. You know, that's just the way the guy was born. I mean, the, the, that's, you know, that's the way I was born. I, you know, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. Since everybody's doing it, it must be legitimate. You see, and it goes from one thing and not saying anything to accepting it, then trying to protect it. And then finally what happens is we start to begin to participate and embrace it. You see, if we understood sin and how it works, specifically temptation, in your outlines, and you'll probably see it up here as well, there's some verses up here, starting with 1 John. Well, actually with James. In James chapter 1, look at this. This is how temptation works. And if you understand this, if you, if you get this, then you should be able to stand firm and let nothing move you because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, James said this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Well, first of all, God is not a tempter. Okay. God made me do this. It happened because God wasn't allowing me to do this. I told God to take this away from me. And if he didn't want me to do it, he should have just took it away from me. He should have just stopped it right there. But since he didn't do it, then I guess that's God's fault. That's how some people look at temptation and sin. By the way, before I go any further, temptation in itself is not a sin. Temptation in itself is not a sin. And we'll see that Jesus Christ himself was tempted. Right? He was tempted. Yet the Bible says that he was without sin. Anyways, it says, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted, look at this, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, temptation is the bait that hides the hook. Temptation is the one thing... Excuse me. Temptation is the one thing that looks good. It's the desire. It's in the eyes. Look what, look what 1 John 2.16 says. And this is out of the King James Version. For all that is in the world, he just said, anybody that loves the world, you know, hates God, basically. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but is of the world. Everything that looks good, apart from Scripture, everything that feels good, you know, everybody is doing it, you know, everybody, and anything that just wants to puff me up, it's not from the Father. God doesn't do that. This is the same thing that happened to Eve. See, Satan has used this trick from the beginning. Look what, look what happened to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. He says, so when the woman saw, what is that? That's the lust of the flesh saw that it was good, that was pleasing to the eye. And, and it enticed her, and, and, it, and it became tempting because what, what happened? Well, it, was, it looked good. 
it was good for food and that it was a delight to the one's eyes. You know, not only do I feel it, not only I see it, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. The pride of life. Pride of the flesh, pride of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There it is. That's the same exact manner and the same exact temptation that he used with Jesus Christ. He said this in Luke chapter 4. And if you read Luke chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, you'll see how Satan is tempting Jesus. The very first thing, what was the very first thing that Satan tempted Jesus with? He said, you're hungry, aren't you? Yeah, 40 days in the wilderness. You got to be hungry. You got to be thirsty. Look at you, you're weak. You're weak and you're falling apart. You're you're close to death and you're, you're the son of God, really? You really are the son. If you were the son of God, what does he say? If you were, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Look good. Come on. Satan's got, got his attention. It looks, you're right. And I don't know, maybe somehow Satan might have made it look this illusion like <laughs> that looks probably got a whiff of that. You know, our, our oral factors, they sometimes bring back memories in our mind and probably got a whiff of the bread and looked at it and says, yeah, you know, I don't know. But I know one thing that Jesus did. He, he didn't argue with him like Eve did. He didn't argue with him like we do. We didn't try to justify it. He didn't try to say anything. He said, but man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He used scripture. He used scripture every time. He says, he says to him, you know, you know, just bow down to me and I'll give you all of this, everything. Oh, that's the lust of the flesh. I can have, not only can I see it, not only can I have it, I can really enjoy this. And, and he, Satan is probably arguing with him and telling him something like this. You came to die for this whole world anyways. Let's just cut to the chase. You don't have to offer your flesh. You don't have to offer your body. I can just give it to you, which he couldn't, to be honest with you. But that's the deception. I'll give you all these things. And Satan will come to you in the same way. He doesn't come with you in horns. He doesn't come with you with a red skin or a tail or a pitchfork. He doesn't come with you in fangs and demonic oppression of all kinds of different things. He comes at you with some truth. To deceive. That is his main priority. To deceive. And he wants to deceive. And he wants to turn God's word against God to you. That's exactly what he did to Jesus. Look at the back of your outline. This is how temptation happens. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, lust of the flesh, it was good for food. I saw it. It looked good. In in Luke chapter 4, stones to bread. Looks good. Lust of the eyes, pleasing to the eyes, what Genesis 3, 6 says. And to, to Jesus, Satan said, it's all yours. Just look at it. You can see it. The pride of life, desirable for wisdom. Throw yourself. The devil says, you know, you're, you're, God is going to save you because you are the son of God, right? That's what you said. Go ahead, throw yourself off of this ledge. Throw yourself off of this pinnacle and God will send his angels. And you will be the, you will be the talk of the town. Everybody will say, wow, did you guys see that in front of everybody? Off the temple. And you had your angels come down and everybody's, everybody will really believe you now. These three things, this category, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life pretty much cover every sin that humanity faces. This is why the Hebrews can say, uh, the writer to the Hebrews can say that Jesus was tempted in every way possible as you and I were, yet he did not sin. You see, temptation is not the sin. It's what you do with it. And we think, oh, you know, I just, I just couldn't help myself. Well, that's a lie as well from Satan. Because he's trying to offer you these good things. 
He doesn't come to you and tell you, well, let, let me have your heart so I can just chew it up and spit it out and stomp on it. And then just do all kinds of vile things to the rest of you. And then on top of that, let me do that to your kids and your grandkids and everybody else. Let me just do that. He doesn't say that to you. He comes to you with this lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can do this. It's no big deal. Nobody's going to know. Who's going to know? As a matter of fact, because you get this done this way, everybody's going to like you. You're going to know more stuff. Let me show you. That's the subtleness of the enemy. This is why it's important, like Jesus, to know the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone. Do not tempt the Lord your God. Come on, who do you think you are? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Many of you probably know this verse. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Every single time, God is faithful. In other words, there are temptations out there, yes. But they're, they're not going to overtake you because they're not just common to you. You're not the only one going through this temptation. So what does that tell you? First of all, I mean, again, look, look at this. What does that tell you? You know what? I'm not the only one. I didn't want anybody to find out what I was being tempted with. I don't want to talk to anybody about what I was being tempted with. I don't know what they'll think about me if I told them what, what I was being tempted with. It's common. And guess what, beloved? When you confess your sins to one another, you're healed. You need to find an accountability partner that you can come up and say, look, this is what I'm being tempted with. This is what I struggle with. And you know, more than likely that person is going to say one of two things. You know what? I'm struggling with the same thing. Or you know how I overcame that struggle? It is common. You're not by yourself. It is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape. There's two doors. You're being tempted to go through the bigger door because it's bigger. It's easier to open. And you know what? Everybody else is going through that door. You know, it's double open. You know, we got to get out that way. But you know that that's where the sin is at. That's okay. Everybody else is doing it. So if I get in trouble, everybody else gets in trouble. You know, but God says, no, I want you to go down this way. There'll always be another door. Always. God is faithful. Amen. God is faithful. Amen? Amen. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. You can go through this. Don't ever say, oh, I just couldn't help myself. Oh, I was just too heavy. That's a lie. Because honestly, we love to sin. Sin is fun. Unfortunately, that's, that's the truth. Because if sin was a bummer, you wouldn't do it. And Satan knows that. And so he says, okay, here's the temptation. I'm going to give it to you. And it's beautiful. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your flesh. It's good for your life. Everybody's going to like you. It's going it's to fill you. It's, you're going to be so happy, you know, because that's what you're pursuing is happiness, right? No. We are pursuing holiness. That's what we're pursuing is holiness. But here it is. Therefore, my beloved, flee. You want to get over temptation? Just flee. Turn around. Walk away. Just, that's it. Walk away. Grab your sword. Oh, okay, no. <laughs> Seriously, grab your word. Memorize scripture. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, you know, you memorize scripture over and over again. But it's my heart. My heart is telling me to do this. My heart told me to love her. My heart, it's the passion within me. You know, the heart wants what the heart wants. You know what I say to that? Tell your heart to shut up. 
Tell your heart to shut up. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure and so desperately wicked. That is my heart. That's your heart. My heart will tell me all kinds of things. Shut up, heart. I'm listening to the word of God. Amen. Flee. But no, we listen to our heart. Why? Because common wisdom, common knowledge says, no, no, no. You pursue your heart. You pursue your passions. And your passions run all over the place. Yeah, but see, that's not the love that God said for us to have. He said to have agape love. And I can only have agape love like that to God, to my wife, and to those who are genuine believers. I can have phileo love. I can have friendship love. I can have all that, you know, the, the bonding love, the family love. But agape love is designed for me and God, me and my wife, me and you guys. That's what it's designed for. My grandson even agrees. Once again, as we were talking about love last week. He says, amen, pastor, grandpa. <laughs> See, and the Bible says, therefore, beloved, Paul says, just flee. That's as, that's as simple as well, flee from this idolatry that is growing within you, this sexual immorality. Just flee. Just get away from it. You know, you, some of you guys, you make it sound so simple. Well, beloved, it is. You know, once you do it, once or twice, once you've fought this and gone through it, it is. And, and so when you are growing in spiritual integrity, knowing the word of God and developing in God's word and, and wanting to do what, what, what is holy and not bring you happiness. See, because when you're, once you're consumed with this happiness, oh, Satan's got easy pickings. Let me just show you what I can, let me show you what you can have. Let me, let me show you what you can taste and feel. Let me show you the, the power that you can have. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He seldom attacks head on. Satan. He comes at us from different angles. Number four. Paul says, I want you to grow in abounding love and in spiritual excellence. And I want you to grow in spiritual integrity. But also, number four, I want you to grow in good works. You see, every one of these, they build on each other. You grow in abounding love, spiritual excellence, integrity, and, and all that brings you good works. Now, we've said this time and time again. We don't get saved by doing good works. There are a lot of people out there that say that you can have to work at getting saved. You've got to walk so many miles to Mecca, or you've got to knock on so many doors, or you've got to say so many prayers, or people have got to pray for you to get you out of purgatory or hell. You know, there's all these things that you must do, people that you must pray to or pray for in order to get saved. See, salvation was done on the cross. This is behind me. This is what I stand in front of. This is what holds me up, is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a crucifix. Jesus is no longer there. It's an empty cross. Jesus is standing and sitting at the right side of the Father, waiting to return. And I, I base my life on that one fact. He is going to return. And instead of focusing on the Antichrist, we need to focus on his kingdom. Instead of focusing on the mark of the beast, we need to focus on the mark of the lamb. Did you know that the lamb has a mark as well? Instead of focusing on fleeing and, and hiding, we need to focus on chasing and redeeming, helping people get redeemed. We're too focused on the end times of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, and of fleeing and hiding. But we should be helping people get redeemed. Grow in, and filled with this righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This, this righteousness, it's, it's this righteousness of works. Jesus kept, kept saying, you know, you are, you are saved. Well, James said this, first of all, you are saved by faith, and it's the works that gives the evidence of your salvation. You say you have faith? Well, show me your works. In the, in the two Gospels, especially, uh, not Gospels, the Epistles, the Epistle of Paul in, 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and the, the, the epistle of James seem to have to be contradictory. Until, again, like you do some exegesis. Okay, who is, G, who is James writing to? Who is Paul writing to? Paul is writing to a brand new church, brand new believers. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. James is saying, well, you got to have works. Well, Paul just said, I didn't have to have works. James is saying, I have to have works. James is talking to the church, a mature church. There were a lot of people in that church that said, oh, yeah, I'm saved. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, me and him, we're tight. Yeah, he's okay. I mean, it's all right what I do because I'm a work in progress. James says, you got faith? Show me your works. Show me. You, I need, because Jesus even said, you will know them by their what? Fruits. And the fruits are the good works that a person does. The fruit is what a person does in, in the life of the church and how it pursues this, this, uh, the, the, the fruit that the Holy Spirit gives you. And you can see it in a person's life when you can see that, because in Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. You'll start to see this genuine love in people. You'll start to see this joy in people's lives. In spite of all the things that are going on in this world, you'll see this joy that's overwhelming. You'll look at them and say, how can they be so joyful? Because they have their peace in God. They have this, this peace, this patience, this kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want self-control? Let the Holy Spirit take, take care of your life. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives you that self-control. See, people pray for self-control. People pray for patience. They don't realize that the world has, that the word has to come through. Again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is not fruits of the Spirit. It's not like there's a bowl of fruit and say, okay, well, today I'm going to need, yeah, I need some joy. Yeah. I'm going to pick one. No, it's the fruit, singular, not plural. It is one fruit. The characteristics of this fruit. You want patience? If you're a believer, you already got it. You want self-control? You don't have to pray for it. It's already there. It's kind of like me jumping in my car and saying, man, I wish I had a car so I can get from here to there. I wish I had a truck so I can pick up some stuff. I'm sitting in my truck. Just turn it on, dummy. <laughs> you know, and then just go. You have it. It's there. Not calling you guys a dummy. It was directed at me. Please. Thank you. <laughs> yes, we agree, Pastor Sal. I, I just want to say number five. Paul says, I want you to grow abounding in love and spiritual excellence. I want you to grow in spiritual integrity. I want you to grow in good works. You know why? Because ultimately, I want you to grow in the glory of God. Because it's all for the glory of God. Everything we do is for the glory of God. The crucifixion was for the glory of God. My suffering is for the glory of God. This kingdom that is here on this planet is for the glory of God. Everything in this universe is for the glory of God. Everything. Somebody, somebody once asked, and it's answered in the Westminster Catechism, so what, is the, what is the purpose of man? The purpose of man is to uh, bring glory to God and to enjoy Him forever. Plain and simple. Bring Him glory. How do you bring Him glory? How do you bring glory to a glorious God? God is already glorious. He's got all the glory in the universe. How do you personally bring glory to? How do you give him that glory? Well, the way that the way that we give glory to God is in everything that you do. First of all, John says in John 15:8, "But by this my Father is glorified." How do you bring glory to God? How do, how is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit? There are different 
ideas that Jesus talked about fruit. You bring fruit of, of uh, your, your, your choice of things that you do. Your obedience is the obedience of fruit. There's also the gifts that you give the financially. It's the people that you raise up or you bring to church uh, that you, you lead to Christ. All of those are fruits. And he's not being specific to either, either which one. He says, just bring fruit. Increasing your fruit and everything. Bear fruit. You got to bear some kind of fruit. You gotta, if, if you're a Christian, you should be bearing fruit. That's just plain and simple. Or otherwise, you're just going to be cut down, thrown in the fire. Bear fruit. That's how you bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Is what you're eating, what you're drinking, what you're smoking, what you're doing, is it everything that you're doing, is it bringing glory to God? Is it what you're watching, what you're listening to, what you're, where you're running, the people, is it bringing glory to God? The places you go, the places you sit, is it bringing glory to God? It's your obedience. See, bringing glory to God, basically, well, let me go over this last one, Ephesians 3.20. Now, okay, wait, hold on. Anything that we do as Christians, anything that we do as believers, anything that we do that brings glory to God, we do it for His honor and for His glory. That's how you bring glory to God, by obedience. And again, we cannot have obedience if we don't know what the Word says. That's why I have you open your Bibles. That's why I give you the verses to take home, to examine them, look at them, read them. You see, again, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, everything that can be done, that God is working in us, he does it. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Whatever he can do through you, through the church, is for his glory. It's for his glory. Everything is done to glorify God. And that's the objective of all believers, is to bring glory to God. Did you know that God desires for all nations, everyone, to bring glory to God? He desires for everyone, every nation, every kingdom, Everybody eventually is going to bring glory to God. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, he's Lord. Yeah, I still don't like it, but he's Lord. And Jesus is going to have everyone bow and everything is going to bring glory to God. The question is asked a lot of times, why did he save me? Why did he save you? So that you can bring glory to him. It's all about God. It's not about you, beloved. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. In Galatians, the Bible says that the angels, the heavenly realms, and those above are looking and seeing, and the mystery is being unfolded, and it's, and it's showing as the angels are looking over and seeing the crucifixion, and they say, okay, I get it. It's about God. God himself went down as God the man and became the perfect sacrifice, and Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirement that God had demanded. To bring glory to himself. And that's why, beloved, we celebrate and we grow. Yes, let's all stand. Thank you. Let me ask you to bow your heads as well. Pastor Sal, you said that we, everything that we do, everything that happens brings glory to God. How does my sickness bring glory to God? How do these financial problems bring glory to God? How do my relationships bring glory to God? How does death bring glory to God? 
How do these things in this world bring glory to God? All things that are done in His name bring glory to God. He uses every instance in this world to bring glory to Himself. Even in the atheist's mouth, when he says, I don't believe in God, he recognizes that there is a God that he doesn't want to believe in. And that brings glory to God. Because we cannot hide from the fact that He is God. And we hold a high view of God here at this church. And we know that He exists and He is sovereign. He is in control. And we know that He is omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresence, everywhere at the same time, omniscient, knowing all things. We know that He is pure and holy. And we know that He is not sin. And we know that He is righteous. But He's also just. We know that He is love and merciful, and we know that He is kind. And we also know that He's going to hold us accountable. And so we stand before you, Lord, right now, as your objects. That at one time we were objects of wrath, but now, Lord, help us to grow in this faith that we have to bring glory to you. And all things, when done unto your name, will bring glory to you. Even the things that we can't even understand and the things that seem to happen that are out of our control, we have to believe that it will bring glory to you. We don't understand it. We don't know how. But we know it does. And so, Father, we we have to come to a conclusion that it's all about you. It's not about us. And I I need to stop making myself the center of this universe and submit myself totally to you. Father, we know that as Paul prayed for his church, I pray the same thing, Lord. I pray that our church can grow in abounding love and and spiritual excellence and spiritual integrity in good works and in bringing glory to you. Lord, we have many needs, but I know that in the process of this all that you're going to fulfill every need as as you just help us to grow in those five areas. And I know, Father, that your word will be proclaimed. And I pray for next Sunday, Lord. I pray that your message of salvation is proclaimed boldly and clearly to those that need to hear it and those that you already have lined up to be here, that they're here next Sunday. And uh, that they hear the word, not only by, by my voice, but by the voice of many others that are proclaiming your word. And Lord, I just pray that you continue to be with this city of San Bernardino, of Highland, as we heal from this mass shooting, as we heal by all these various things that are going on. And the prayer requests that we had this morning, Lord, I pray that you hear each one and that you answer accordingly. So give us the peace and the understanding that all things are going to work out together for good for those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. Dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence. Keeping us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. amen and amen. All right, thank you for being here. We're here now dismissed for this portion. I'll be up here for a moment if you'd like to come up and have a word of prayer.